Coal Shack reports the bazaar, the supernatural, the unexplainable. You will get it, another crazy story. This nut thinks he is a vampire. You know what I call that? Irresponsible yellow journalism. He has killed four, maybe five women. I saw that so-called super killer wipe up the streets with your so-called police force. They don't want any help from amateur bloodhounds like you. I've been a reporter for 22 years. I've been a police officer for 30. Well, then why don't you retire? Each man in the field is issued one of these and uh, one of these. Are you suggesting that we pound one of these into Scorzini's chest? No, no, into his heart. Darren McGavin. The Night Stalker. Chapter One. This is the story behind one of the greatest manhunts in history. Maybe you read about it, or rather what they let you read about it, probably is some minor item buried somewhere on a back page. However, what happened in that city between May 16th and May 28th of this year was so incredible that to this day the facts have been suppressed in a massive effort to save certain political careers from disaster and law enforcement officials from embarrassment. This will be the last time I will ever discuss these events with anyone. So when you have finished this bizarre account, judge for yourself its believability, and then try to tell yourself, wherever you may be, it couldn't happen here. That was the voice of reporter Carl Kolchak, who disappeared March 28, 1975, though there were rumors of his reappearance in 2005. Though Kolchak's work was often suppressed by the newspapers for which he worked, he left behind a series of cassette tapes which have been painstakingly restored. We'll be discussing those tapes and other ephemera during this show, The Kolchak Tapes. I'm Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Chris Tashu. Hey there, Mike. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm glad to be here talking to you about the Kolchak tapes. Like you've said before, it's a kind of an overlooked 70s TV show, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting it kind of back into some people's minds who have never seen it before. And very easy to find. I mean, these first couple movies that we're going to talk about, maybe not the easiest to find, but as of this recording, all the episodes are out there on Netflix streaming, and I... Pick myself up a box set of it. It was 20 bucks for all 20 episodes. So buck an episode. You can't do much better than that. I watched it on Netflix, but I own the box set as well. And if you're talking bang for your buck, this is about as good as it gets. So let's talk about The Night Stalker, the first of the Kolchak movies. You could consider this a pilot, but it really wasn't a pilot. It was a made-for-TV movie. And I don't know if people really remember what made-for-TV movies were. I mean, obviously, the, the what they are is in the title as far as made-for-TV movies, but they were events, so it was kind of a big deal to sit down and watch every single week a new movie being produced by these studios kind of in the guise of television channels. So you would have the ABC movie of the week, the NBC movie of the week, the CBS movie. So there was a lot of movies that were coming out. Some of them were so popular that they would end up playing on the big screen, uh, such as Duel, which played theatrically. Night Stalker, I don't think that that played theatrically, but it was a huge thing. It, it still to this day ranks as one of the 
the top-ranked television movies as far as ratings across the the whole life of the made-for-TV movie spectrum. Well, and you know, the more I think about made-for-TV movies and kind of in the present, it's not a thing anymore. There's like those, you know, Hairspray Live, and that's about as close as it gets nowadays to like live television or again not even that those are live events so that's not even a really good analogous but it kind of is because those are the only like big events that i can think of anymore it's kind of like fallen by the wayside is a thing that i mean this aired on abc and abc is still around obviously so it's it's kind of surprising that they don't really do anything like this anymore no, they kind of got phased out. I mean, I remember them still going on in the 80s. I'm not sure if they went up into the 90s. I mean, for me, the biggest made-for-TV movie was The Day After. I mean, that was a huge event. There were stories in the newspaper, interviews on the Today Show, all these things. So, I mean, The Day After was the one where you sat home and you watched this, that, and then the other big one for me was V, the first V movie. And that was one of those where everybody at school, at elementary school the next day was like, oh my god, that chick ate a rat! So that was a pretty big deal, but I think that was actually a miniseries rather than just a TV movie. But but the two, I think it was a two-parter the day after. That was, you know, huge national news. I guess the only one that I can really think of off the top of my head would be The Stand. And that was the 90s, but I guess kind of like V, that, that was a miniseries. Yeah, it was, what, two, three nights? I can't remember how long that lasted. I think so. That sounds about right. I guess, you know, the more I think about it, though, like History Channel did that um, – Texas miniseries. But again, I think these are all just miniseries. This stuff kind of moved, I would say, into like the world of the sci-fi channel. And then really the channels that own made-for-TV movies these days, when I think about it, are Lifetime and Hallmark. And right. it's like they're premiering movies like probably today. I mean, their big season was December for all of those, you know, cockamamie Christmas movies that they're putting out, you know, a, a candle for Christmas, all these kind of things. How dare you besmirch such great films as Candy and Coco, A Dog and Cat at Christmas. That's not a real one, but by God, you know what? I bet someone just Googled to see if it was. ABC, though, really had this market cornered. I mean, even in the 90s, you know, I we've we've overlooked this one, and I know that this is one that's, oh, it's like the scariest movie I've ever seen. It was a television movie. I mean, it was a miniseries, but I, I, I feel like miniseries is just another way of saying TV movie split up over two nights, because most of them were, like, a lot of them were just two-night events. Well, it's weird. There are, like, very specific rules for, like, for the Nielsen ratings as far as was it a one-night thing? Was it a multi-night thing? And I think there's some weird thing where it's like, if it's two nights, it's neither fish nor fowl. It's not a TV movie or a miniseries. It's like it has to be three to be a miniseries minimum or one to be a TV movie. But if it's two nights, you're screwed. You're nothing. You lose! Good day, sir! Which kind of puts Kolchak in an interesting spot because you have the Night Stalker and then you have the Night Strangler and then you have the proper series Kolchak the Night Stalker, which I don't have as much, you know, around the bend knowledge as you do, Mike, about certain things. But I can't remember a whole lot of series that came out of a TV movie like this recently. Frankly, I don't think there has been anything. No, but that used to be kind of common practice where you would have the television movie with the hopes that it is going to serve as a pilot. Mm -hmm. 
And in this case, I don't know if they necessarily, with the first one, said this is going to be be a pilot. I think even with the second one, they weren't saying this is going to be a pilot. Though I think Jeff Rice, the creator of it, was hoping it was going to be a pilot. And he was actually kind of behind the scenes trying to pitch this to different people, saying, listen, this can be a, a weekly or a monthly television show very easily. And poor Jeff Rice. I mean, you want to talk about one of those you know kind of tragic figures of Hollywood. He's one of those guys where he created Kolchak. He's a, a, a reporter working in Las Vegas, so you can probably see some parallels with the Kolchak character already. He's working in Las Vegas. He ends up writing this book. It ends up getting picked up, and he knows basically nothing about like contracts or any of this stuff. It sounds like his agent really just wasn't there looking out for him, and he didn't even have his name like associated with this stuff for the longest time. He's trying to write the pilot. He was trying to uh, be an actor in The Night Stalker. He was, you know, working behind the scenes for the the second one, trying to get involved with that, and he's just shut out. He just completely got shut out of the industry once he finally like uh, had a settlement with them. He had this whole thing of like a contract for five more Kolchak books, and you know was supposed to have his name on the series and all this stuff. Nope, he just was. Boop right out of it so he's he's definitely one of those figures where it's like listen i'm the guy i created this stuff but nobody wants to give him the time of day which is unfortunate but sadly you hear about these stories and it doesn't really happen a whole lot now because i think people are a lot more savvy about the industry because of stuff like this right but i mean this was a pretty common thing that happened in the 70s and 80s and even before that but it it is unfortunate because you know up until 2005 when his when the novels were republished uh by moonstone it was kind of hard to find the books on top of everything else so you had a hard time even coming by the original Kolchak character. I mean, can you imagine if the like Harry Potter books were hard to find, but the like the name of Harry Potter was out there? It's like it's hard to imagine now. But that's what happened with the Kolchak character. Is it was you know you could barely find the books that he was you know, the character came out of. I imagine Kolchak, the TV series, was available on VHS, though it's not something that I can immediately see in my head as far as sitting on a video shelf. But yeah, I guess it would be kind of like if the Harry Potter movies were out there, but the books weren't available, yeah. you know, or J.K. Rowling really wasn't a household name. Or she had been completely pushed out of her own creation, which, again, in this day and age, that's not going to happen because... People are super savvy about everything. <laughs> well, you know, there's always those lawsuits that come out once a movie gets really big or, or is just about to come out, you know, and it's just like, no, no, no. I was the guy that wrote The Matrix like 10 years before the Wachowskis ever came up with it. Or no, no, no. I wrote whatever. I wrote the, the latest Eddie Murphy film and nobody's giving me credit. I had all the ideas for Star Wars and everything. And it's just I was like. What? Like, it seems like it's usually when the movies have been out for like three or four years, and it's like, wait, why are you suing about this now? I don't know if it's just like the victims of the, the Trump sexual abuse, like, you know, take a long time to come out uh, against them. I don't think it's that. I think it's just one of these like, hey, this movie's successful. Let's have a lawsuit and maybe I can get something out of it. I think that's what it is. It, it has to be like, I oh, look, I can probably get some money to just like shut up and go away. Even if I have absolutely no actual association with this or the or my claimed, oh, I came up with this and it's sort of similar in a roundabout way. Uh, 
uh, I know that J.K. Rowling, we keep talking about Harry Potter, but she had to deal with something like that. So it's this. This is always here, and this is like the dirty side of the business. Is like what happened to Jeff Rice with being completely pushed out of your own idea and then having to be like, you know what? No, I'm going to fucking sue you and take my thing back from you because I created it. And it's, it's kind of, I mean, that's, that must be disturbing to be on the receiving end of that. He came up with a great book. I mean, it was originally known as the Kolchak papers. And at one point I think it was going to be called the Kolchak tapes, thus the, uh, the name of the show. But what ended up being the night stalker is the story of, Carl Kolchak, small-time reporter in Las Vegas. We don't get a whole lot of his history. Like, in the TV movie, we get a whole lot of, like... Let's see, how many times has it been? Uh, twice in Washington, mm. three times in New York, twice in Chicago, and once, or was it twice in Boston? I'm becoming extinct in my own lifetime. Rice is actually a character in the book. Rice is in The Night Stalker. And he actually is has met the real Carl Kolchak, who has given him all of these cassette tapes. And then Rice goes out and verifies the facts. So there are points where you'll get little footnotes from Rice within the text, like you know this person has since retired, or I was unable to, you know, confirm this. And there's um, you know stories at the end when he's talking about you know getting a note from Kolchak, wanting some of the residuals from the book, and uh, there's even an appendix where he talks about how. Kolchak's research had all of these things about Jack the Ripper in there, which is kind of funny. We'll talk about that with the the television show, but had this whole appendix in there about Jack the Ripper, and it's, you know, Rice is introducing it like, oh yeah, Carl had all these notes, so I want to put them somewhere. There were too much for the body of the text, so I'm going to put them in this appendix. But yeah, he's very much a character in his own book, which is interesting. And especially because he and Carl Kolchak were kind of cut from a similar cloth. Both newspaper men both had ink in their blood. Well, you know, I think Kolchak is kind of Jeff Rice's like wishful thinking of himself. Kind of. Right. Like this is who I wish I could be. But at the same time with what happens to him in the night stalker, why would you want that to be what happens to you? Like you just got like the shit kicked out of you after you're the hero, you're the hero of your own story. And then at the end it's like, but wait, sorry. Well, and Carl Kolchak is described as being incredibly lazy. He's an alcoholic. I mean, there's several times where he talks about how he has this relationship with another reporter in the office who they were kind of rivals at one point. The guy had gone away. Carl had gotten his job. The guy came back. They were kind of rivals for a while. But then they finally came to an agreement that when one guy was hung over, the other guy would take the stories. And when the other guy was hung over, they would take the stories. So there's this whole like support network of alcoholism that's going on in the office. <laughs> So he's not necessarily the biggest hero in the world, of course. And then Carl, you know, I will say that as we watch this series, he's not the most brave man in the world. He's not the smartest man in the world. But I think at the same time, that's why I like him is because he has those foibles. It wouldn't be particularly interesting if he was more Fox Mulder than he needs to be because he's kind of he's this is something that we talked about in episode zero how much this show has been a touchstone for a lot of shows that have come out now 
And if if this character was a stronger character and less of kind of just like, I don't really want to have to deal with some of this stuff. Nobody believes me. I don't think he would have been as interesting because I don't think even at the time that character would have fit very well into the world of the 70s anyways. Like a brash journalist. Because the way that the show is set up is no one believes him anyways, regardless of how brash he is. You could make him not super brash, which is, at least in the Night Stalker, the, the this first movie, he is to a point, I mean, at the end of the episode, he kills a guy. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a level of brashness to his character, but I do think that a lot of this was like Jeff Rice projecting what he wanted to be maybe more of onto the character of Kolchak. Well, it seems that even though Kolchak is a lout and he, you know, is self-admittedly the laziest reporter around, you know, just to the point of like, I really don't want to walk there. I'd rather drive there kind of thing. He has this thing where he has to find the truth out about things. And it's not like this, you know, Superman truth, justice in the American way kind of thing. I think it's just this little piece of the back of his brain that niggles at him when he can't find out the whole truth about something. And he, he, in the movie, he, uh, you know, it goes at Vincenzo, his editor about this and is talking about, you know, how important is it that a newspaper print the truth about something? Now that is news, Vincenzo news. And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. And I think that's, you know, kind of what drives him and will keep him on the case and at the same time, it doesn't seem to me, and maybe this will change as we go along with the actual series, but here in the Night Stalker, I don't think that he wants to believe that this is a vampire stalking Las Vegas, that he just wants to find out the truth, no matter what the truth is. And if it happens to be a vampire, it happens to be a vampire. But he doesn't seem like one of these guys who's looking for the outrageous, the supernatural. Which is a, a good thing for his character. Right. Healthy skepticism. Yeah, as opposed to blind believing <clears throat> Fox Mulder. <laughs> exactly. That's where I was coming from, yeah. Yeah. it's He's more Scully than Mulder, but he has that drive that is never there in the X-Files until the end of the show, which is Scully finally believes. When Kolchak sees the vampire, he's like, it is a vampire. Right. It's, you know, he, he believes it, which I think is really smart from a writing point that sometimes when you have characters in in in, in fiction they go well I've, I've seen this but i will continue to find reasons why it isn't this and it's refreshing to see a character that's like okay i believe it i didn't believe it before or i was skeptic but now i'm like okay i got it he's there he's watching the evidence he's weighing the evidence it's not like he's just going oh a woman was drained of blood it's a vampire right that's fox Mulder. right <laughs> That could be the Chupacabra. Right. Calm down. Take a couple <laughs> steps back, man. Uh, it's probably not the Chupacabra. I don't know if you watch the Murdoch mysteries, but there's one character on there who will always go for the outrageous answer rather than the plain answer. I guess it's like Castle on on the television series Castle, where he's always looking for the crazy answer and versus his female partner who's really straight-laced. Huh, that seems very familiar to me as a, well is that a formula it might be is that a formula mike the yeah straight, the straight man and the non-straight man yeah oh. huh oh. what do you know which is another awesome thing about kolchak because that's not that's not a thing in kolchak 
He has his editor, Vincenzo, who is kind of some of that. But I think, like, Kolchak himself is the center, and he's surrounded by everybody else who's a skeptic. Like, a hardcore, like, not like not even going to believe it, even if I showed you proof. Well, and the other thing that I like about this is, so, I mean, Las Vegas is kind of a character in Night Stalker, and I think it's really clever that they set this in Las Vegas as far as... Las Vegas is, is, you know, for for all intents and purposes, New York can say it's a city that never sleeps, but Las Vegas is really the city that doesn't sleep. I mean, those casinos are open 24-7. And they purposely make it so you don't know what time it is. Exactly. Yeah, no clocks, no windows. You know, we're, we're going to keep you in here. And people are up all night. There are, you know, the go-go dancers, the showgirls, the entertainers, the cabbies. I mean, all these people are out. I mean, we've all seen uh, CSI. We know that, you know, there there's a whole nightlife to Las Vegas that probably aren't in too many other towns. So... It's very smart that they do that. And then at the same time, not only does he have opposition from, you know, the cops, the mayor's office, uh, somewhat with the FBI, though he does have a friend in the FBI, have all this opposition because they don't want to believe Kolchak because he's saying vampire at a certain point in the film. But they also want to keep a lid on this stuff because it's bad for tourism. It's the Jaws conundrum. Something bad's happening, but uh, that we, it's, uh, it's Labor Day weekend. So uh, the people got to come. They actually do that in the book. They say it's Memorial Day weekend is coming up. and They're trying to get it wrapped up by Memorial Day weekend because all the tourists are going to come in. And, of course, I picture that scene in Casino with all of those you know, families coming into Las Vegas just ready to hand over their wallets, basically. Right. The kind of thing that the city has turned into this tourist town instead of the, you know, the hard-drinking oasis for gambling and, and drugs and sex that it is you know, in the the uh, the golden age, quote unquote. The underlying like sense of corruption in the city, both perceived and real, also is a an interesting thing that drives the story and and Las Vegas as a character because a lot of cities don't have that. You don't feel like there's like a second world going on. And that's something that, you know, you get in a lot of David Lynch with this like, oh, that's like this normal town, but there's all this fucked up shit happening under the surface. In Las Vegas, there's fucked up shit happening on both surfaces. So you completely like you understand that this city, there's a lot more going on. There's hookers going to people's rooms and drug deals and bathrooms. So it's if we're talking cities that really are interesting and and I wish more of Kolchak was set in Las Vegas. Obviously, they didn't because of the way that this first film plays out. But it would have been nice to see it set in Las Vegas because Chicago isn't as – no offense to Chicago – it's not as interesting a setting because I've seen Chicago in a million other things. And it's not as seedy as Las Vegas is. Yeah, it's not like as perceived seedy either. I mean I just – Chicago is a dangerous place for different reasons. And it's interesting that both are, in movies anyway, mob towns, you know, especially like, you know – turn of the century Chicago Al Capone type thing that was like such a major thing that that was the mob town and in Kolchak the Night Stalker in the first movie here there's no mob at all you know it's just it's kind of like it's one of those like we're not going to talk about 
the mob. We're going to talk about the police. We're going to talk about the political situation. I mean, there's this whole thing in the book, too, where they're talking about the DA getting reelected and all these kind of things. And it's just like, oh, okay, you know, and really like maybe even grooming themselves for like a governor position. So there's a whole lot of, of stuff all these stakes on the line as far as that goes, but there's no mention of the mob whatsoever. And you you mentioned the book with Jeff Rice and him being a character, and this is something I I, I wanted to, and this kind of ties back into everything about Kolchak. Jeff Rice was so ahead of his time with what he did in that book because if if he had written that book now. Everyone would be like, well, he's just copying uh, that J.J. Abrams book that came out a couple years ago or any other. It's kind of it's pretty meta, right? It's actually very meta when you present the character as a real person, putting yourself as the go between between the character and the reader. That's it's a pretty novel concept that now isn't as novel anymore because of found footage films, which is kind of the film version of, of that same idea. But it was pretty ahead of its time for the 70s, early 70s. Well, it's a really well-written book. I mean, it flies by. And as I was re-watching the movie today, after having listened to the book, and I, I did listen to it, I didn't read it, and it's very well narrated, a really terrific production that they did of this. And as I'm watching the movie, I'm getting... A whole lot more, of course, to this because it was a great adaptation. I mean, you couldn't get a better crew to uh, to handle this project when it finally moved into, you know, ABC's hands with this. It was Richard Matheson was doing the adaptation. It was Dan Curtis doing the production, and Dan Curtis, you know, uh, he basically his name at that point was associated with vampires because he was the guy behind the Dark Shadows TV series and the two Dark Shadows movies. So it was kind of a natch that he was going to be the producer of this movie about, you know, Dracula in Las Vegas, basically. But yeah, Matheson did a terrific job of taking the meat of Rice's story and translating it to the screen and then keeping the whole idea of the tapes there as your opening narration. You know, we see Carl in that seedy hotel room and he doesn't talk to us. He talks to us through his tapes and then using that as that kind of hard boiled narration through the rest of the show as being a reference back to those tapes. And I can only imagine how Jeff Rice must have felt having his unreleased at the time book adapted by Richard Matheson. Oh yeah. I mean if you're gonna do it, do it right, right? It's like one of the heavy one of the heaviest hitters in science fiction horror writing. And it I can't even imagine what that's like. That's, I mean, that's insane. It's weird. There was like that little like Matheson Renaissance that we had a few years ago, where it was like uh, the stir of echoes, what dreams may come, and I want to say at least one or two more films, all being adapted from Matheson's work, all within like a two or three year period of time. Not to mention, you know, I Am Legend happening. Dear God, if, can yeah, you not mention let's that? Not, not, let's not <laughs> talk about. Let's talk God, about Omega my... Man instead. I was going to say, what is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> or the Vincent Price last man on earth. I mean, that was a lot better. But yeah, he was having this like little mini renaissance because the guy did so many great books, so many great stories. I mean, he was one of a handful of writers who really made the Twilight Zone go. So, you know, this guy had chops beyond chops. And he wrote my personal favorite episode of the Twilight Zone, <laughs> Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. 
Primarily because it not only is the Shatner episode of the show, it was also then redone later in the the Twilight Zone movie, and then John Lithgow played the William Shatner part. And as well as like, oh, there is something on the wing. I mean, it's so it's so Shatner and hamming it up, but it's so well written that you can't help but just be like, oh man, I get it. It's great writing. Shatner, you know, neither here nor there. But Matheson had his finger on the pulse in the 60s and 70s of sci-fi and horror. And there's a reason they're adapting his works into films 30, 40 years later. Albeit not very well, but there's still something to be said for them being adapted at all. I have to say, speaking of William Shatner, one of my other favorite Twilight Zones is another William Shatner and another Richard Matheson, which was the Nick of Time episode. That was the one where it's Shatner and his, I think it's this, uh, his new bride going across country and they stop at this little diner and there's the uh, fortune telling machine. Do you remember oh, that one? Yes. Yeah. The one that po- has the little thing that pops up. Yes. That is so good. Those five seasons of the Twilight Zone are some of the best TV and it's so cutting edge TV. Because nobody was doing anything like that. Matheson was a member of this group called the, I think they were called the Southern California Sorcerers, where it was Charles Beaumont, who was another huge writer for The Twilight Zone, Ray Bradbury, George Clayton Johnson, Lily Muff Nolan, Jerry Saul. I mean, just so many great writers all in one place, all doing this amazing work in this short amount of time. I mean, the 50s and 60s were just this golden age for sci-fi. It was crazy how much was being done. And in a time where you're just like, you don't, I mean, some people would look back at the 50s and 60s and be like, oh yeah, that's like cheesy stuff, you know? Oh yeah, like, you know, guys in rubber suits and stuff. No, there's a whole lot more going on to that. I mean, if you look at the Twilight Zone, if you look at the actual short stories that these things were being based on you know that so many great things were happening back then and these guys were the progenitors and we're going to hear William F. Nolan's name come up in this series maybe once maybe twice because he plays a role in this whole Kolchak regalia as well yeah it could have it was guys in rubber suits and in quote-unquote bad makeup and cheesy makeup but that doesn't take away from the quality of the stories they were telling it never will nightmare at 20,000 feet you get the sense that William Shatner's character may or may not actually be crazy and be freaking out because he just was discharged from a sanitarium because he had a nervous breakdown. You may He may or may not actually see something on the wing. And yeah, it's a guy in terrible, hair lip, weird monster makeup. But it, it doesn't take away from the story, similar with Kolchak. The makeup for Barry Atwater is cheesy. It looks like dime store vampire fangs. But it doesn't t- it doesn't take away from the sense of dread that you get when Kolchak is backing down those stairs with the cross out. And you're like, that vampire could kill him. So it doesn't take away from it. It's just people today, because of the great CGI that we have, people want to really focus on the visual effects. And, oh, it doesn't look this good and I can't watch it because it's like, uh, focusing on the wrong thing. We don't need CGI Peter Cushing to make a movie good. Kind of taking it back into Kolchak territory. I mean, you're talking about Shatner as being, you know, 
possibly crazy, possibly not, but he, at the end of the day, seems to be the only person who actually knows the truth. And really, Carl Kolchak is the only guy who wants to know the truth. I mean, I think that, you know, Sheriff Butcher, I love that name, Sheriff Butcher and, and Police Chief Masterson, and maybe even Bernie Jenks, the Ralph Meeker character, who is Kolchak's friend and is there at the end when they're defeating the vampire. I mean... I don't think they really want to know the truth. I mean, I think Jenks is like the closest guy to wanting to know or just kind of being accepting of it. I mean, he is the guy who does the legwork to find out more about Scorzene and his past and everything. So I think he starts to really accept that. And I don't know if he would have made that move if Carl hadn't been pushing him. I think he would have. I think he just went about things a little bit differently than Kolchak did because Kolchak's telling him at one point, like, you should look up all the sanitariums and see if there's anybody who's escaped recently or been let out who has a, you know, Dracula's fixation, anybody who, you know, thinks that they need to drink blood. So they are going about it kind of logically, like this person isn't a vampire, but they think they're a vampire. And Jenks is like, you know, don't tell me my job. I know what to do. And so it, it feels like he's already on the case and already doing all this work. So when he comes in with that statement about Scorzene, and tells the whole history of scores in a, I mean, that's, you know, it seems like he's been working the whole time trying to get this stuff settled down, regardless of what Carl is doing on the front lines. And if Kolchak, you know, he is the one who believes after the fact that this guy is a vampire. If they, if they had never shown you the vampire fangs and he had just been running around being shot by people as well, could Kolchak actually kill a vampire or not? Like, that's that's that would have cheapened this entire thing. He had to be a vampire because at the end of the day, then you realize that Kolchak is right. He's not crazy. Everyone around him is treating him like he is or blackmailing him into leaving after he does their dirty work. But I would that would have cheapened it for me, at least if Kolchak had been. Well, did he? It wasn't actually a vampire. It wasn't a vampire. It was just a crazy person. I'm a vampire. I'm a vampire. I'm a vampire. I'm a vampire. The stakes of the guy actually being a vampire had to be there for me to fully enjoy the Kolchak character and kind of the arc that he takes and the growth that he makes as a character. When you talk about that frightening moment when Kolchak is in the house, I mean, that is is absolutely terrifying. But for me, the other really terrifying moment is when we get our first really good look at the vampire, because we've seen scores in a throughout this thing. Luckily they don't hide them. You know, it's not like one of those things where we're just like, okay, we hear about it and Carl's never there. We actually get to see some of this action, like the uh, stuff at the uh, blood bank at the hospital. When he throws that guy out of that like third story window, which is a terrific stunt, by the way, I love that stunt, but we get to see him a little bit. We don't really get the close-up, but when we get that close-up of, of him after he's been fighting with the cops by the pool, and Carl's there, and he's trying to take pictures and everything, and we kind of zoom in on him, and he's got these red eyes and that gash across his forehead, and his face is just you know deathly white, that is just a terrific image, and that is one of those like, oh shit, we are definitely dealing with something supernatural here. I think that aside from the vampire fangs... Barry Atwater does a really great job as Scorzini. He is imposing as a vampire. Well, and he doesn't even have a line. No, he's just making, like, weird hissing noises. 
I'm not sure what the hell that was supposed to be. He was like hissing and it works though. It's funny in the book, they talk constantly about how bad he smells, especially his breath. Like that's one of the dead giveaways. Like he'll even like dress up in different things in the book. Like he'll put on, you know, like bad tan makeup, you know, looks like a certain president and elect and he'll go in and, and try to like uh, affect a different voice. And he's constantly, you know, saying that he's different people, you know, I guess kind of like Fletch, right. But everybody recognizes him because he just has this horrendous breath that will just knock people out. Just how bad it is. It just that people can't even describe how bad his breath is. It's just like beyond death is how bad <laughs> his breath is. They don't really talk about that too much. I don't, if at all in the movie, which, which is good because we're not in, you know, Odorama or anything, but right. that is one of his many giveaways in the book is just how bad his breath is. You mentioned Fletch and Kolchak, I would say, is kind of in that pantheon of like really great fictional journalists, but he's like one of the lesser known ones, which is unfortunate. I forgot that Fletch is a is a journalist rather than a detective, correct? Right. He is a he's an he's an investigative journalist. So essentially, what Kolchak is, Kolchak's more like thrust into being an investigative journalist. At least in the Night Stalker, he is. But yeah, they're both journalists. In Fletch's case, it's a name only. I mean, you never see him do journalist things. Yeah, I think I you see him at the office getting yelled at by his chief here and there. That's probably the closest to being a journalist he is. And Kolchak, I get the sense that Kolchak is a journalist who just keeps, you know, John McClane style happening on these weird happenings. <laughs> they just happen to follow Kolchak wherever he goes. Yeah, and eventually he just happens to bump into Vincenzo wherever he goes. Another, oi, another just like super, super strange thing. You know, and then in the new sh- version of Kolchak, They took that kind of things are happening and Kolchak's chasing him down. They took that aspect out of it, which made me like it even less than I could have, much less than I did because I like the idea of these things are just happening and Kolchak is kind of keeping his ear to the ground about them as opposed to uh, his wife disappeared possibly because of the four horsemen of the apocalypse like oh god no it's better when the main character for me isn't directly tied to like a bigger idea he's just part of it by happenstance or some perceived need to right a wrong or prevent something bad from happening well, and the other thing that, and I know we'll talk about the the 2005 series as we go along in this uh, podcast series as well, but the other thing that Stuart Townsend didn't have at all in that reboot was a sense of humor. And that's what I like about Darren McGavin's portrayal of Carl Kolchak is that he brings some levity to it. There's that great back and forth between him and Simon Oakland as Vincenzo. So th- th- there's chemistry that's happening there and there's humor that's happening there sometimes the humor might tip too far and we'll talk about that when it comes to the series but in these first two movies i think that it's a great blend of humor and horror and that there's levity to some of this stuff i mean kolchak's self-deprecating 
voiceover for lack of a better term because uh, because it is the tape i mean but him talking about that i mean it's ironic to me that darren mcgavin played mike hammer on tv as opposed to a philip marlowe because he so reminds me of a philip marlowe i mean that line that uh dick powell gives in murder my suite where he's talking about how his wallet was trying to crawl under a duck or something it's just like these weird little turns of phrase where it's just like okay and Kolchak kind of has that, and he he definitely has that wry wit to him that Amarlo has, where I don't necessarily see... I mean, Mike Hammer, to me, always seemed like he would think with his fists rather than his brains, and Darren McGavin really brings that that wit and that quickness to it. Um, that that, And I think that's one of the reasons why I like his portrayal of Kolchak so much. I really like... Darren McGavin in general as an actor. And it's unfortunate that he's not around to talk with us about Kolchak. Uh, he would be, oh, he'd be 93 at this point, which is too bad because when you have a show that relies on a solo lead, which by the way, that's like, that's a lost art now. There are so many, there are so many shows on TV and almost none of them are relying on one actor. I would say almost none of them do anymore. You know, I said CSI earlier because of its Las Vegas setting. I mean, and how many Gil Grissom types have they been through over the years? They went through three main guys, you know, with between Peterson, Ted Danson, and Larry Fishburne. It's just like, yeah, you are. And that's almost the thing. Like when these actors come onto these shows these days, I'm surprised the first line in their contract isn't, you are replaceable because Georgia Fox or whoever, like these people can come and go whenever or, or they can move to a different city and be replaced you know suddenly or you can you know do your crossover i mean gary sinise wasn't csi new york for the whole time i don't think and i know caruso was for miami but his crew was rotating in and out and rory cochran he was out of there after like just a few episodes so it's like yeah these these people it's all ensemble pieces so that we don't have to rely on one person holding the keys and demanding more salary i think you know, with a show like Goldcheck, Darren McGavin's it. I I mean, Simon Oakland is Vincenzo, but I mean, for the most part, you've got Darren McGavin carrying a 50-minute episode. That's that's really such a lost art, and they do such a great job because Darren McGavin is such a damn charismatic actor. He's so charismatic. He's so he's a he is a very human actor. You believe him. You believe that he's just like, all right, I, I'm just dealing with this weird shit. I don't really know what's going on, but I'm doing it because I'm a journalist and it'll probably get me on the front page, which is like what I got in the Night Stalker is that he's just trying to get on the front page. And so a uh, vampire. Yeah, that'll probably do it. Well, not only is he trying to get on the front page, but he wants that national attention and he wants to get back to New York. And he's like even singing about how he's going to get back to New York. Carl Kolchak is coming back, baby. He's going to be there and he's going to be dealing with those A-list newspapers. And here he is in this kind of backwater burg of Las Vegas, which you wouldn't necessarily think of Las Vegas as a backwater burg these days. But for him, it's just like the end of the road almost. You know, he's it's like he's he's one page check away from just not being able to make it, not being able to hold his shit together anymore. And he's just, you know, doing the the crime beat, doing whatever, you know, covering local elections, any of this kind of horse shit where he wants to be out in New York. You know that that's his kind of city. Yeah, and he fits into New York better than he does into Vegas. Also in the novel, he was 
dressed a lot more casually. You know, like to wear, I, I don't know if it was like Hawaiian shirts, but just like his khakis, this kind of stuff. And he definitely is wearing a very distinct outfit, and he seems to be dressed different from everybody else in the city of Las Vegas with that blue seersucker suit and his kind of straw. Sometimes it looks like a pork pie hat. I mean, it's very, very distinctive outfit. And at one point, he changes his clothes. He comes in with this big, bright yellow tie when he's kind of like made it, it looks like, and he's going to be back on top of the world. He changes his outfit, and then he's right back into it by the end because he's Nope, he has failed. And for the rest of the series, that blue suit and that straw hat are just going to be ever present. And that's one of my favorite things about the character is that he does have this distinctive sense of who he is. When you see Carl Kolchak, you understand immediately who he is as a character. It's like it's a, you know, with the hat and he, he could either be one of two things. He could be a ambulance chaser or a journalist. And he kind of acts like both because he's always at the scenes of these crimes really quick, taking pictures. So he's one business card away from asking someone if they need to sue the person they got into the accident with. He looks like that kind of character. And that's what's so great about it is that Darren McGavin could have not bought into that character, but he really does. You believe you when he is being Kolchak, you believe it. You believe that he is Kolchak. Yeah, Darren McGavin, his voice is so great his and even when he's not on screen his voice is going to be there through the use of the tapes to you know carry us through these scenes to narrate us through these things especially like those women who are dying at the beginning and we're getting that voiceover from him talking about these women and you know later on in the in the movie we're going to get some more voiceover from him as he's talking about other things where he's not really present but he's put together the facts which is pretty great and sometimes it seems like even things that he could never really know but he's going to put them in the story anyway his voice is so great and then his face i love just watching darren mcgavin's face especially when he his character is confused you know it always reminds me of like the old man from christmas carol like when those when he is sitting there reading the paper and the dogs are coming in and they're going to eat the Christmas turkey and he gets that look on his face just like what's happening before he you know he realizes what's there McGavin's face is just a study in acting he really is and like you said his voice his voice is great um I remember back when I was growing up my dad was really into and it still is into John McDonald John D McDonald uh books and he narrated a large portion of the audiobooks for John McDonald. Darren McGavin's voice works just like it does in Kolchak. It works for that kind of story. And so I always remember hearing Darren McGavin's voice, and I'm a huge sucker for narration in movies and TV. I mean, it's it's just it's just that much better. I mean, some of my favorite shows, they have like narration from the characters because it's it's cool to get into a character's head and see and you like hear what they're feeling. And kind of get, you know, a better sense of the character as opposed to just having to get it through them interacting with other characters and kind of what they're at. Yeah, I love those John D. McDonald's, the the Travis McGee books. And I, I recently got taken to task when uh, people were saying, you know, who could have played Travis McGee? Because there were only two people who ever played him on screen, which was Rod Taylor and Sam Elliott. And, yeah, I mean, Sam Elliott without the mustache, he always looks a little naked. And Rod Taylor, I mean, he seemed better fit to play a Mike Hammer character because, I mean, they're the, I mean, 
Travis McGee could take care of himself, but he seemed to be more of a thinker than a, a fighter a lot of times. I mean, there were fights, of course, in the books, and he could take care of his uh, of business. But yeah, I, I always thought of McGavin, not necessarily because of the narration, but once I found out that he had done those audiobooks, I was like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. I can totally hear his voice in my head when I'm reading these books. That would be a terrific Travis McGee. And you know, people are just like, no, screw you. This, he's totally wrong, wrong build, wrong everything. He doesn't have the right tan, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, all right, well, you, you pick better. Who's it going to be? Leonardo DiCaprio? I don't think so. Or Christian Bale. That was the other name that was uh, attached at one point. RDJ was actually attached for a little bit, too. I could see that. I could kind of see that, too. But, like, see it, but only, like, so much. Like, maybe in the right light. Yeah. Again, I think Robert Downey Jr., I mean, he was okay in The Singing Detective, but I could see him as that kind of, again, going back to Marlowe, being that character in like the long goodbye. I mean, I think him and, and Elliot Gould would almost play that role the same way. I don't know if you knew this, you know, speaking of recasting characters, Kolchak at one point, and I don't know, this may still happen. So maybe talking about it invokes some sort of demonic pact with this actor's uh, guardian demon that watches over him in his career. Do you know who they were talking about casting as Kolchak in a film? Johnny Depp. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah, that is truly a horrifying prospect. Yeah. I don't want to see Carl Kolchak with dreadlocks. No. Or like with a pet parakeet that he has on his shoulder. (laughs) Some weird thing that Johnny Depp would bring to the role that just doesn't need to be there. That's written into Johnny Depp's contract. Johnny, you're thinking of Beretta, not Kolchak. I don't care. I gotta be weird, man. I get it. You want to do something different. I don't think Johnny Depp could hold Darren McGavin's pork pie hat. God, even when it comes to the supporting characters in the Night Stalker, I mean, these are terrific people. I mean, Claude Aikens always loves seeing Claude Aikens show up. So for him to be, you know, Sheriff Butcher was fantastic. Like I said, Ralph Meeker playing Bernie Jenks. He's amazing. And then even to see like Elijah Cook Jr. show up as as Mickey, like the informant guy. I was like, holy shit, I can't believe it's Elijah Cook Jr. This is amazing. And then the other one that always gets me is Larry Linville as uh, Dr. Majerky and uh, or McCurgy, I should say. And apparently at one point, Jeff Rice was actually going to play that role. There's a picture of him in one of these Dewitziat books where he's got like a goatee and his hair's kind of, you know, moved to the side. And he's the character is supposed to be an Indian guy. If you can't tell from the McCurgy name, he's supposed to be Indian. And then they end up having Larry Linville play him. <laughs> but, I mean, it's always great to see Larry Linville show up. And, you know, Carol Lindley as well is yes. pretty is pretty good. Her character, like the arc is super strange. Well, that character, we'll we'll talk about this. Yeah. So yeah, tell me what you were thinking. I'm thinking, man, they ran out of time. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I'm thinking. Cause the the movie, it isn't set up for a second film. It is, but it isn't. Right. Because, like, almost, and this is kind of dark, you kind of feel like Kolchak is, like, going to blow his brains out in the bathroom. But really, right? Like, he's leaving these tapes. 
He's been disgraced as a journalist. He's in this sleazy hotel room. It looks like he hasn't slept for a couple of days. It looks like he's going to commit suicide. And this is like his last will and testament left in tape form. A lot of that kind of stems from the character of Gail Foster, played by Carol Lindley, who straight up is like, I'm going to marry you, Kolchak. And he's like, yeah, let's uh, let's do it. I'm going to get this big article about vampires published, and then we're going to get married after I make all this money. And she, like, is forced out of town because she's a dancer and then disappears and, like, never tries to look for him or vice versa. In this pre-Facebook age, it had to have been really tough sometimes to try to find somebody, you know, in in America when you don't necessarily know which way they're headed. You know, they could have put her on a train to Kansas City or something, and who knows where Kolchak's going to go. I mean, he's probably going to go to a big city, and maybe at some point she'll want to look him up, or maybe she just doesn't want anything to do with him after that. I don't know. But yeah, it's interesting that that's part of it is that not only is he kicked out of town but she's kicked out of town as well just for being a dancer though i totally thought that she was like a hooker in the book she's a hooker okay and that makes yeah yeah in the book she's a character i think her name is sue and it's a really nice relationship that they have together It, it it reminds me of the relationship between our main character in shoot the piano player and the prostitute that lives in his building is that when they're lonely they see each other they might have sex they might not have sex they will spend the evening together he'll take her out for dinner and at one point they're doing all this research on vampires he's got kolchak took some classes at like UNLV or something. And he goes over and he sees this professor character, this little woman who's very, you know, hard pressed for time. I mean, I I can imagine like Linda Hunt playing her in the movie kind of thing. And he borrows all these books, takes them back. And he basically recruits like another journalist who lives in his building, who is a complete souse, who just, uh, he will do work for beer basically he gets a couple kids from the university to come over and help out and then he gets sue to come over and she actually brings some of her prostitute friends and he's talking about how great it is that she will come over on a friday night which is her busiest night with her friends and they end up leaving the friends end up leaving at like midnight or so to go out and you know kind of scare up some johns and sue ends up staying with him he comes back after a a couple of like little mini adventures that he has that night. And when he wakes up the next morning, she's there cooking him breakfast and he just has this real admiration for her. I mean, I hate to say hooker with the heart of gold, but she really is and brings out the best in Carl. But at the end, she's not run out of town. Basically he's run out of town and that's it. There's, you know, there's no talk of marriage. There's no talk of anything like that. They are just basically fuck buddies and that's about it, you know, and, and there's a little bit more friendship to that. You know, they're, they're the kind of people that are going to have a good conversation after they screw, but yeah, there's, there's no, like we're going to go to New York and get married, baby. And that is my kind of biggest issue with this movie is Her character, unless she comes back in the series, which she doesn't, obviously, it feels very rushed. Kind of a forced relationship, and they try to, like, give it some stakes there at the end where it's like, we're going to get married. It's, oh. And then what happens at the end is, you know, he gets run out of town, she gets run out of town. And there's, like, that, there's kind of, like, throwaway line where he's like, I just put things in the paper looking for her. Yeah, you know, missed connections on Craigslist. 
Like, what did they send her to Dubuque? Like, I don't. <laughs> I, I have a hard time believing that they would not have been able to find one another. Yeah. And that's it's just strange. It's kind of a weird way to have the character to kind of disappear for just being a dancer. Right. And they could bring back Vincenzo, but they weren't going to bring back her. And they'll never explain why Vincenzo was just editor at different newspapers across the country. <laughs> <laughs> he just is, folks. Exactly. Yeah, there's. it's weird, too, because there are characters who are above Vincenzo that you get to meet. And then those characters kind of come back in the second movie. The one guy who's played by John Carradine. And there's even another level to that. And he gives kind of a history of, of these characters in the beginning of The Night Strangler, which we'll talk about in the next episode. But yeah, it's interesting to know that these characters, since they weren't in the first movie, they come back in the second movie because Matheson is writing the second one completely on his own. There is no source novel for that one. And then again, we'll, we'll talk about this more next time, but then Rice takes Matheson's script and adapts that and is able to flesh out his script. So Matheson adapts Rice and then Rice adapts Matheson. So there's a nice synergy there. And mind you again, this is the 70s. This is not 2016 where continuity is everything and every single little thing is meticulously picked over by legions of fans. I'm not going to say nerds. I'm going to say fans who are trying to find every single small connection and every single small Easter egg that they could have thrown in. It's not that they don't care, it's that they don't think that you care. Right, yeah, exactly. And the chemistry between McGavin and Oakland is such that, okay, sure, I'll take it. You know, and and Tony being this blowhard who's just always, you know, on Carl, I mean, he's got some great lines in there about, you know, they don't need uh, an amateur detective player, or an amateur bloodhound, you know, plain detective, uh, you know, leave it to the cops. And then even at the end, when he kind of like stops dead and tells Carl that he's a really good reporter, he knows that the ax is coming down on Carl's neck, but I'm glad that he takes the time to stop and tell him that. That's one of those great moments in this film, which is why I think we're still talking about it all these years later. I mean, 44 years later. So pretty good job to have something that has that those kind of legs to it. And their back and forth really is is kind of the backbone of him at the office. I, he has a really great line, which I think kind of sums up their entire relationship, was, you're beautiful when you're angry. And it's just, you, you get that feeling that they do respect one another, but they like just poking. It's like poking each other to see how far they can poke one another without the other person just like completely going off the hand. Vincenzo is the bear. You do not want to poke the bear too much. Well, sometimes you eat the bar, and sometimes the bar eats you. But you can't play Travis McGee if you're Sam Elliott. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Mark Dewitziak, the author of many Kolchak stories, the man who literally wrote the book on Kolchak, The Night Stalker Companion. And we'll be back with that right after this. I'm really curious about your background. I was reading the Kolchak Companion, but can you kind of tell us uh, what your background is? What, what's your education, and, and how did you come to love Kolchak? Yeah, you know, I, I've kind of told the tale till it's gone stale, but I never <laughs> mind repeating it. I tell my students this every uh, semester. Um, 
in my the, the class I teach on writing at uh, Kent State University is that um, you know I, I grew up a, a horror fan. I, I I became a horror fan at seven when I saw um, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. You know, uh, up to that point, I was a comedy fan. And, uh, you know, and I've, it, you have to understand, see, where I grew up uh, in New York uh, in the uh, early 60s, children's entertainment was the entertainment of our parents. There was no Nickelodeon. There was no Disney Channel. They gave us the entertainment that of our parents and in some cases our grandparents. We got the Little Rascals. We got the Three Stooges. And uh, we got an awful lot of comedy teams. We got an awful lot of Abbott and Costello and Laurel and Hardy. And the Three Stooges. And subsequently, I, th- that was my earliest introduction to uh, entertainment and old movies. It's really where it started. And so at seven years old, when I saw Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, I was there for the Abbott and Costello half of that. Not the Frank. I didn't know what Frankenstein was. <laughs> I'd never heard of it. I was seven years old. So this was 1963. Lo and behold, there's this amazing performance by Lugosi as Dracula in uh, that movie. And it turned me into a horror fan. Uh, and I just started watching anything that would come along. Uh, anything that was, was anywhere remotely horror, whether it was a hammer horror film, an old universal film, a uh, science fiction film from the 1950s, the twilight zone, the outer limits, dark shadows, night gallery. When it came along, um, I was feasting on all of this. So 1971, late 1971, you start seeing commercials for this thing that ABC is going to air in January called The Night Stalker. And there's this vampire running loose. I cannot tell you how good the ad campaign was on Night Stalker. So I was 15 at the time. And to say this was in my wheelhouse would be an exercise in understatement of the greatest degree. I was so primed for this movie. In other words, um, 45 years ago, tonight, I was in a state of extreme anxiousness for this to come because the commercials had been playing since before Christmas, and I could not wait to see it. So when I did finally, when it when it finally came out, and it, it exceeded all expectations, like I, I just never seen anything like it. Um, when I, when, when I, afterwards, when I saw it, it had as much impact on me as a horror fan, but more, almost more from a career standpoint, because to this day, I think Carl Kolschak is the best representation of what a journalist should be, what a reporter should be. And I've heard other reporters say this, I say this in the book, but that I've had other reporters say the exact same thing. Um, you've got to remember that a couple of years later, I'm starting journalism school uh, in Washington, D.C., just days after Richard Nixon has resigned the presidency at George Washington University, blocks away from the White House. And I am surrounded by journalism students. Journalism students are, are everywhere because everybody believes this is the era of Woodward and Bernstein, that they're going to give you book contracts and make movies about you. And you're going to bring down presidents if you become a journalist. And my role model was not Woodward and or Bernstein. My role model and continues to this day was Carl Kolschak. Um, so I, even more as a horror fan, also just from the standpoint of uh, 
journalism as a career. Uh, this is an incredibly important character to me. Uh, I've carried this character through through my life since uh, seeing that movie for the first time in January of 1972. Um, and I, I, I can't think of uh, any other character that um, has meant as much to me as, as Carl Kolschak. He's, he's been very good to me. Um, and I always say that about, uh, you know, I'm very fond of Carl. He's, he's been incredibly good to me. As a young horror fan, after you see Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, what are your avenues in order to pursue horror? Is it just strictly television? Was there a lot of stuff at the movie theaters for you? What was kind of your, your foray into the horror world? As a horror fan in the early 60s, um, it's a better time and it's a worse time. I mean, it's, it's like anything else. You know, technology is always going to give you a lot and it's going to take something. Um, in my case, the great thing about being a horror fan back then is there wasn't that much of it. That's going to sound silly, isn't it? But my students, you know, uh, I'll ask them, you know, do you like horror? And they'll say, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 we, we love horror. And then when you f- ask them what they want, they all read different things. They all see different things. Night Stalker, when it came along, well, one thing to, to remember about that to jump around here, but when Night Stalker came along in January of 1972, it, you know, it, it posted a 54 share, meaning that more than half the people watching television at that time in America were, was watching the Night Stalker. Now, that's a communal experience. We all went through that together. The, the term, um, everybody's watching it. It has no meaning. It's lost its meaning in, 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 the, in pop culture terms. The most watched show in America, a uh, hell of a lot more people aren't watching that show than are watching it because of the sheer number of channels and choices there are. But back when we were in a three-network universe and something like the Night Stalker came along, it could post a 54 share. Which means the next day, everybody was, did you see it last night? Did you see that? And there was a good chance they did. Um, and horror was kind of like that. We all shared the same things. If you're a horror, were a horror fan in the 1960s, you were watching late, late shows to, to anytime you were scanning the weekly TV listings in the newspaper. Uh-oh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is going to be on. Oh, Godzilla is going to be on. Oh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is going to be on. Um, it wasn't so much revival houses. It was television. Um, so you were watching, uh, cut up butchered versions of these movies and you were happy to get it. You were, you were very, very happy. Anytime one of these movies you hadn't seen came along. Um, and, and then there was, and I can't under say enough about this because it was the unifying force. It was the great unifying force among horror fans in the 1960s. And that was famous monsters of Filmland magazine. Um, it was the house journal for, for horror fans in the, in, the, in the early 60s, followed very closely by Castle of Frankenstein magazine. There's no internet. There's no way to sort of bring this fandom together, which really kind of starts in 1957, 58, when Universal re- releases their shock theater movies to uh, TV stations around the country, which creates the horror host, the phenomenon of the horror host. And it also creates uh, this kind of horror fandom that we know today and um famous monsters was sort of a way of all of us looking at the same thing at the same time and there was a lot of that so when something came along in horror as a book uh, rosemary's baby and the exorcist are published 
And if you're a horror fan, you read it. And we all read the same things. We all read Lovecraft. We all read Poe. You all read sort of the basic stuff in the 50s. You read Block. You read Matheson. You, we had a common language. Horror now reflects the same thing that the culture reflects, which is I say to my students, oh, you like, never mind horror, just vampires. You like vampires. Oh, well, you know, what do you read? They all read something different. No, nobody reads the same thing. Uh, what do you like? What do you like? And is they all like something different? They like Twilight. They like True Blood. They like Vampire Diaries. They, they everybody likes has it goes to their own corner of the pop culture world. And there's not the sharing that went on that sort of communal, common, shared experience that we had as horror fans. You're a horror fan in 1963, 64. There's a very, very good chance. You got Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. You watched The Twilight Zone. You watched The Outer Limits. You collected Aurora monster models. We kind of had a shared childhood in a lot of ways. The same things were warping us in the same way. That starts to break down and you know, the, the closer we get. But it sort of speaks to the fact of how important The Night Stalker was. Um, a 54 share everybody was watching it that's not just horror fans that are watching that everybody's watching it and it's not just uh people who are interested in the genre but an enormous number of people who are interested in the genre and are going to grow up to make horror are watching it and uh that's why i tell my students i i i teach a course at kent state called uh vampires on film and television we start with nosferatu and we work all the way through to the current vampire boom and each week we we discuss a different decade, pretty much. And I show them the Night Stalker when we hit the 70s. Not one of them has seen it. Not one of them even recognizes the title, to be perfectly honest with you. And I say to them, you're going to love this movie. It's a movie which to them is ancient. It's, it is ancient. It's 45 years old. It's, it's older in some cases than their parents at this point. Some of them. It is beyond old as far as they're concerned it is a tv movie from 1972 in which the doubling is poor the special effects are non-existent and the makeup is limited and they absolutely adore it and their first question is why didn't i know about this and i always say to them well you do know about it it has influenced everything you like everything you watch everybody who has grew up to do horror that's influenced you was in some way influenced by this movie, either directly or indirectly. Maybe directly, like Chris Carter or Joss Whedon. Maybe indirectly, uh, by the people they influenced. So this 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 movie's a game changer in a lot of ways, and that's why I tell them it is the best known unknown movie you're ever going to see, and in the sense that every horror fan. You, you know, of age and 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 breadth of knowledge knows it. But the the, the bad news is that m my students don't know it. The good news is they love it when they see it. The magic that was there still works, and nothing works more than Darren McGavin's performance. They are just absolutely. And I tell them beforehand. I say, look, I don't want the penny to drop halfway through the film. You're going to watch this movie. And I'm going to say it stars Darren McGavin and you're not going to know who that is. And they don't. And I said, but you do know Darren McGavin. And rather than have you sitting there going, I know that voice. I know that from somewhere. I'm going to tell you it right now. 
He's the old man in Christmas story. Oh, Christmas story. The lamp. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that. Yes, yes, yes. I don't want this, this penny dropping halfway through the movie. This is a younger, more vital Darren McGavin. Get that out of your mind. Get Christmas story. Let's get it out of the way. Now sit and watch and enjoy the movie. And boy, do they. You mentioned Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and, well, of course, Kolchak, The Night Stalker. It seemed like the early 70s, late 60s were just kind of rife with horror that was almost taking over part of the culture. And especially looking at the landscape of, of other television movies to look at you know, Dan Curtis and his work and some of Matheson's TV work. Do you think there was some sort of... I don't want to get too far up our own butts here, but was there some sort of like an existential crisis going on? Is that why horror was so popular at that particular time? I don't know. I go back and forth on this. I mean, people always say that horror thrives at difficult times. Well, the 60s were, you know, pretty challenging decade. Um, but in truth, the horror booms came in the 50s and the 70s. So I don't really know. I mean, in the 50s, you have this kind of golden age of certainly on the, the written page when you have Matheson Block and Bradbury and those guys uh, sort of creating the modern horror story in the 50s. And then in the 70s, you have the, the rise of the horror specialists, people who are basically horror writers like Stephen King and Anne Rice and and horror directors like George Romero and John, John Carpenter. Um and so you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it's sometimes a little I, – I, I think the answer to that is horror thrives all the time. Uh, I don't know that there's ever been an era where horror – because it's metaphorically perfect. The human um, – and I don't want to get too heavy here. I mean, I, I, I realize you know, we're, we're talking about Night Stalker, and I don't want to get too existential. Um, however, it does go to the basic appeal of Night Stalker, so you know, I'll go ahead and say it. It has been often said – by me and others, uh, it's not certainly an original thought with me, that the two most primal responses are fear and laughter, horror and humor. They are the two perfect metaphoric ways of dealing with things we do not like to think about. And in any era, there are things we do not like to think about. Um, and you can't fake them. They're the two things you can't. You can't fake laughter and you can't fake what, what scares you. I do a, um, an experiment with my students in the vampire class the first night. And uh, I, I say very, very dramatically to them in my best Vincent Price manner, you all have to tell me what you're afraid of. And I make them do it. I say, take a moment and think. Think very, very deeply and profoundly. And don't lie because I'll know if you're lying. They never question that. How in the world would I know whether they were lying or not? But they never question that. But I, I say, you have to tell me. And we go around the class, and every single one of them tells me, what scares you? And so it's different. Everybody's response is different. And not only is it different, then I tell them. It's also going to change, because if I ask you this question 10 years from now, I'll get different responses. So you can't fake fear and laughter. And I think horror is always uh, necessary. It was necessary when Poe was writing it was necessary when Mary Shelley was writing. It was necessary when Shakespeare was writing ghost stories or Dickens was writing ghost stories. Um, I think a good deal of the Bible uh, works on a horror story level. Uh, the basic conceits of the horror story are all there. So if it's essential in the human need, if it's essential in, in, in what we need as human beings, I, 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 I don't think that the theory that horror thrives at 
dark times or challenging times. Each era shapes the horror that comes out of it. That is true. You cannot write a sonnet in your time without being influenced by it. So here comes Night Stalker, which actually airs before we heard the word Watergate, before anybody heard the word Watergate. The Watergate breaking takes place actually after Night Stalker, shortly after Night Stalker airs. And in the coming months, Night Stalker, uh, Carl Kolschak and the Night Stalker become a perfect reflection of the 1970s, part of the 1970s, that era of mistrust in government, that era of something's gone wrong, that era of there are things up there, there are corporations, there's government, and they're not telling us things. Um, Kolschak precedes Woodward and Bernstein uh, as a character. He's prophetic in a lot of ways because he sets the tone for the 1970s and he reflects his, his decade beautifully um so yeah there was something going on but i think there's always something going on um is is is, i guess is what i'm saying there are you know there are great horror writers that come out of every decade there are great horror auteurs who come out of every decade and it's not so much that the need for horror is more acute in one decade than another it's uh how we use it that changes, why uh, we need it that changes. So that's a very long-winded and pompous answer to your question. Um, but the truth much going on in the 60s, what happened was important, and it was influential because we were all watching it. But, you know, comparatively, yeah, there was Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, and yeah, there was Dark Shadows and, 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 and Night Gallery and, and, the, and Dan Curtis's movies like Trilogy of Terror, but it was the occasional thing which came along. It's not like by the end of the seventies when horror is on the bestseller list all the time. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a constant and you have an army of horror writers doing really wonderful work, different work. People like Clive Barker and Robert McCammon and Dean Koontz and Anne Rice and Stephen King, and they're dominating the bestseller list. You didn't have that in the 60s. You had the occasional. And, 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 and who is it from? It's from guys like Ira Levin or William Peter Blatty who weren't horror writers. We didn't really have horror writers. until That's a very current thing. We had people who wrote horror. Edgar Allan Poe did not view himself as a horror writer. You know, he, he viewed himself as a writer, and occasionally he wrote stories of horror. Sometimes he wrote stories of mystery. Sometimes he wrote humor, which people don't read and don't know about. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson didn't view himself as a horror writer. He just happened to write some of the most influential horror that anybody's put to paper. The, the idea that you could be a horror writer, somebody who really said, that's a, kind of more of a, mod, a, a, a recent uh, conceit. And, and being a specialist like that is more of a, of, of a current conceit. So there wasn't that much uh, in the 60s. Again, again there, were, there just wasn't um, this kind of every week you look forward to something. Uh, certainly not like today. Uh, you look around the landscape of today and you look at, especially at television, and you look at the sheer amount of horror that's there. Good stuff, by the way. Uh, and a lot of it's the, 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 these are the children and the grandchildren of around um and you look at at how much is being done on 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 tv and you realize you this really is the in some ways the golden age you know uh that was a very informative age uh in the 1960s and 70s 
Um, but, you know, the truth is you had to wait and you had to wait for the occasional Hammer film to come along. You had to wait for the occasional novel to come along. You had to wait for the occasional TV show to come along that really would would uh, capture your fancy as a horror fan. So you've talked a little bit about kind of your personal relationship with Kolchak. How did you get started writing about Kolchak? Mm. If I'd had my druthers because of my interest in horror, I probably would have written horror fiction or horror on horror topics before I did. But often enough with careers, uh, stuff chooses you. You don't choose it. You know, so um, my first book was a uh, was a slice of theater history. I was a theater critic and theater has always been a great love of mine. And uh, that book was published in 1982. Um, I then wanted to write a book on the Twilight Zone. Uh, that was kind of my my dream, uh, one of my favorite all-time shows. And um, Mark Scott Secree beat me to it. And he not only beat me to it, he did a great job. I couldn't even be mad about it because he did such a wonderful job with the Twilight Zone companion. So I immediately set my sights on the next major critically acclaimed show that I thought deserved to be a book. And that was one of my favorite shows. And that was Columbo. And I spent uh, the next five or six years researching and interviewing for the book that became the Columbo file, uh, which was published in 1989. And, um, you know, I had a great interest in mystery and in in that, that field as well. And uh, I always thought that Columbo was one of the great detective characters of all time. I loved the way Peter Falk portrayed the character and the book came out and did and was 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 very very well received um and I thought my next book was going to be about Dashiell Hammett. I thought, well, I uh, you know, I, I'm going to be mostly known for uh writing about television and also writing about mystery and the mystery genre. So I had a handshake deal with a press to do a book on Dashiell Hammett. And uh, that was going to be the next book. I knew that was going to be the next book. And um, uh, the press got sold. uh, And the new owner cut off the nonfiction line of the press and made them just a fiction press. So the the firm deal that I had, the stitchings came loose. And I kind of was, um, as they say, at liberty at that point. And out of the blue, a phone call came from a small publisher uh, in New York. Image Publishing, um, a fellow I've become became good friends with, Ed Gross, who just uh, wrote with Mark Altman the big Star Trek uh, history. And uh, Ed said, I'm a big fan of your Columbo book. He tracked me. I was working. I was the TV critic at the Akron Beacon Journal at the time. And he said, I'm a big fan of your Columbo book. And I said, Thank you very much. And he said, um, have you ever thought about doing the same type of book on the Night Stalker? And I said, yeah, I just didn't know there was anybody crazy enough to publish it. He said, well, I'm crazy enough to publish it. So I tell you what. And I said, and at that point, I, this is kind of what, what, what cemented it. I said, I haven't done any work on this yet. I said, I, I love the character. And I explained how much the, the show meant to me. And, um, you know, it's, it was kind of one of my three shows. Twilight Zone, Columbo, and Night Stalker. And, uh. I said, I'll tell you what, there are four main guys here. There's Jeff Rice, who created the character, 
There's Darren McGavin, who played it. There's Richard Matheson, who wrote the teleplay for the Night Stalker. And there's Dan Curtis, who produced it. Let me get in touch with the four of them. If they say yes, if they cooperate with this and say they'll written about it, I'll do it. So over the next few days, I got in touch with all four of them, and all four of them said yes. And uh, in short, that's how the book came about. Um, in some ways, it was it came of my own love and passion for the show, but I didn't set out to write a book on the Night Stalker. It would be disingenuous to claim that this was uh, my idea or my dream because, again, uh, I wasn't crazy enough to try it, and I didn't think there was a publisher crazy enough to publish it. And uh, Ed was. So that became the first version of the book, which was published in 1991 as Night Stalking. And um, six years later, I revised it, expanded it as the Night Stalker Companion for Pomegranate Press. And uh, it was redone for that. In between that, I wrote Grave Secrets, the first novel uh, for, uh, featuring Carl Kolschak, uh that had been done since Jeff had done the original novels. And um, that too, I wouldn't have set out to do. Uh, Cinemaker Press, which was a small press in New York, had uh, obtained the rights to do new Kolschak novels. And Jeff Rice had uh, given them the permission. And they, um, they fully expected Jeff to write new Night Stalker novels. And he, it came back and said, uh, no, I, I, I don't really have the time uh, or energy to do it. And Cinemaker said, well, you know, uh, well, who would you let do it? And he said, I'd let Mark do it because he liked the way Night Stalking came out. So they called me and said, you're going to write the first Kolshak novel in 20 years. And I said, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can. I said, I tell you what, let me come up with some ideas. I'll submit them to you and to Jeff. And if there's an idea there that you think is worth doing, I'll, I'll take a swing at it and try to expand it into a full novel. And uh, the idea that was Grave Secrets was the one everybody liked the most. Um, so this is what got me into horror writing, guys. This is what, you know, this, the, Kolshak is, this, when I say I owe Cole, Carl Kolshak a lot, you know, uh, this is what got me into uh, the field. It's what introduced me to people like Dan Curtis and Richard Matheson. Um, it, it was my entree, and uh, this all happened in the span of, say, like 1990 to 1997. I'm very curious what Jeff Rice was like and what he was like to work with as far as both the uh, research for night stalking and then also um, your kind of communication with him as far as him, I don't know, passing the torch to you as far as the Kolchak character. Jeff was a very bruised individual. Um, he was very bruised by uh, what happened to him in Hollywood. And so he was very, very careful. He was very, very mistrustful. Um, he took certain safeguards uh, while we were, while I was writing night stalk stalking. Um, he was, was, was extraordinarily careful to make sure that everything he, he did was quoted accurately um, but when Night Stalking came out, I think I gained his trust. I think it's, it, it, it took the writing of that book to, um, to gain Jeff's trust. And then after that, we became, uh, 
good friends. Um, we would talk. He, we, Jeff was a letter writer. Long, he never owned a computer. Jeff never owned a, a computer. He liked to write on an IBM Selectrix. And uh, he liked to do all his correspondence by mail. Years after we had gone to, everybody had a home computer and everybody had email or texting or whatever. Uh, there were only two people that I still corresponded in letters, actually sitting down and printing out a letter and mailing it with a stamp. And Jeff was one of them. So um, Jeff had his eccentricities, let's say. Um, but when I was writing Grave Secrets, the thorough professional came out. He was a dream. He was an absolute dream to work with. He let me have my head completely in what I wanted to do with the novel. He did not interfere. And all of his suggestions made the book better. Every single one. He became the professional writer and editor that was in there. And it was an amazing thing to watch. Uh, and it was an amazing collaboration. And so we became, we, we, we stayed in touch um, up to a couple months before his death. Uh, we stayed in, in, in touch. Every once in a while, a phone would ring. And it would be Jeff, and we would we'd have a uh, every once in a while uh, the mail would bring a long letter uh, from him. So uh, somewhere you know in this very crowded office, um, there are probably a couple hundred letters from Jeff, um, and there's uh, uh, a lot of memories as well. Um, he doesn't get enough credit. You know, you know if if you know a horror writer whose last name is Rice, it's probably Anne. And, uh, you know, Jeff was responsible for an awful lot of the success of what uh, Night Stalker became and what Kolshak became. And that does not diminish the incredible contributions of everybody else. You know, I've always said that Night Stalker is almost like a, it's almost like a table. And there are four legs to the table. You know, and the first leg is Jeff Rice. The second leg is Richard Matheson. The third leg is Dan Curtis. And the fourth leg is Darren McGavin. You knock any one of those legs out, the table falls. You, it needs all four of them uh, in order to become what it becomes. So, um, uh, but, but Jeff and I, Jeff had a reputation for being difficult. Um, I'm, I'm good friends with Harlan Ellison. I've known Harlan since uh, 1985. And people like to say that Harlan is difficult. Um, the way they would say that Jeff was difficult is sometimes the way they say Harlan is difficult, which is he expects you to do what you say you're going to do. And people in Hollywood don't believe they should be held to that. Oh, yeah, we're going to do something together. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're going we're, we're gonna, to, I'm going to call you next week. Well, you better call. You know, now most people hear that. And they realize it for what it is. You know, with Jeff, if you said you were going to call, you're going to write a letter, you're going to get the information to him. He took you at your word. He believed in being, he had a code of honor. He had a code of responsibility. And he believed that's what you were supposed to do. So when people didn't live up to that, he would call them on it. That's essentially what precipitated the lawsuit. Uh, against uh, ABC and Universal is they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And, you know, this little writer had the audacity to demand they do what by contract they were supposed to do. And so Jeff was deemed difficult. And this followed him, you know, to the very end. 
that you know Jeff wasn't difficult. You know, and I would tell people who I would put in touch with Jeff, and they say, "Well, we hear he's difficult." So you're not difficult. You just have to do what you say you're going to do. Don't you're going to do it. Uh, you be a pro, a professional, and you'll be fine because uh, he'll he'll deal with you in a professional manner. So you know what I'm basically saying is, you know, I knew Jeff from uh, you know roughly 1990 till until his death last year, two years ago now. Um, and uh, we never had a problem. Never had a you know uh, I can't recall a crossword. I mean I can't recall a problem. So you know um, did he have a reputation for being difficult? Yes. You know was it deserved? Well, it depends on what your definition of difficult is. That's the thing about the Night Stalker Companion, is that I had no idea, really, about Jeff Rice. So that, your book really brought to light both him and then, yeah, kind of the the tragedy of his character. I mean, even that he was trying to play, what, Dr. Majarek in the, in the movie, and, yeah, McCurchick, thank you, and, and, uh, they they pass him over on that too. It's just like the guy. It seemed like he couldn't win. Yeah, and and you know, I, I it's Jeff. I think his life was 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 establishing a pattern. It was established, and and the the moment he filed suit, um, the pattern of his life changed. The 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 thing that was supposed to happen, how it was supposed to happen, all changed. I think it, you know. Um, and it's ridiculous to say if he hadn't, because Jeff was, he wasn't capable of not. He was not capable of not uh, standing up and demanding people do what they were supposed to do. It just wasn't in his nature. So, you know, it, it's, it's silly to sort of say, you know, uh, well, if he just hadn't. But, you know, if he, if he hadn't, you know, I think Jeff would have gone on to a, a, a very steady career as a, a a screenwriter and and a novelist. Uh, I think he, his career would have developed along the lines that he saw it developing, and, and under natural circumstances, it would have developed. Um, but he essentially uh, that lawsuit was the career equivalent of driving off a cliff. And um, yeah, it, it 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 you know tragic is is a very it, it's odd because um, he sort of predicts it. You know, the end of the the the, the novel and the end of the movie is not kind of unlike what happens to Jeff in his life. So, you know, uh, Jeff said that he, you know, uh, he always said, you know, the character of Carl Kolschak was based uh, primarily named Alan Jaroslin, who he knew in in, uh, Las Vegas, that that's where he got the uh, the basic character from. But he drew on himself, too, and he he said it. And, And so there's a certain irony. To the fact that, you know, kind of what happened to Jeff happened to Kolchak in, in the story. So, um, you know, I, yeah, it, it, it is, it, there is sort of a tragic thing. There's also something a bit heroic about it because Jeff kept going. You know, he kept going against uh, uh, pretty long uh, and terrible odds. So, you know, I, you know, I, I wrote a column about Jeff after he died, you know, um, and I think it, I was, one of only two people who wrote um, anything about him. I think there was a column in the there was a there was a column in the Las Vegas paper, and then there was my piece in the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And that was it. There's no obituary in the Hollywood Reporter. None. 
in Variety, none in the Los Angeles Times. There was no um, acknowledgement that of what he had done and what so many other people have lived off of and how much influence he had, again, directly and indirectly. Um, you know, so, but I, you know, I, I wrote that piece basically, you know, and it got picked up a lot at sites that are devoted to horror. And I was glad of that because that's the primary audience that should know. And it's an audience that kind of does respect their elders. You don't see that a lot in a lot of genres, but horror fans, not always, but often enough, they, 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 they can and do appreciate the heritage of what went before. And I think that's kind of nice. So you talked about working with Jeff Rice. Um, what about working with Darren McGavin for your two companion books that you wrote? Um, Darren um, opened his home to me. Um, when, when I, shortly after I decided to do the book, I was in Los Angeles. I think that was January of 1991. It was, it was one of the very few it was a rainy January. I mean, things were flooding everywhere. Um, and I was staying at a hotel in Santa Monica, which flooded. Um, and all of the freeways were, were, were flooding. You know, it was, it was, it was pretty intense, but, um, he, Darren had just given blood, (laughs) ironically enough. And, uh, he said, you know, that he was going to, have a little something to uh, sort of uh, get his strength back, and but that if I wanted to sort of hop in a cab and come on over to the house in Beverly Hills, um, he would uh, talk about Night Stalker. So I, I went over, and he, he and Kathy Brown, his wife, um, opened their house to me, and I stayed for hours, and we just talked Night Stalker. Um, among other things, I mean, we, we talked primarily Night Stalker, but we did talk about a few other things. And uh, the majority of uh, the interview material I did with Darren was done that night. It was done in a marathon session uh, over uh, wine and cheese. And, um, you know, and he was wonderful. I mean, Darren was a great storyteller. And, you know, we talked by phone. We did follow-up stuff uh, a few times. And, I'm, and, and we, we would encounter each other at uh, different LA, uh, you know, functions here and there. Um, uh, now and again. So, you know, there, there were, there was follow-up stuff, but most of what ended up in the history was done in that one marathon session that night. And, um, I, I think Darren was, I think he was a little perplexed that anybody wanted to talk that much about Night Stalker. Um, he was very proud of it. He was very, very proud, especially the movie. He, you know, there's no secret that Darren was not in love with the TV series. And, but Darren didn't like the sequel either. You know, if you, I, I, he's on record in, in, the, in, in the Night Strangler. He just thought Night Strangler was a repeat of Night Stalker, and, uh, which I thought was selling it short. Uh, but, he, you know, Darren liked two things about Night Stalker. He liked Jeff's original story, and he liked the movie. And for that, he would talk. Now, you know, he, he, he talked freely about the problems he had with the series. But he never, you know, I mean, he, 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 he had nothing good to say about the series. 
He had nothing good to say about, uh, and he wasn't alone, by the way. I mean, you know, Jeff didn't either. Dan Curtis didn't either. Richard Matheson didn't either. You know, the people who worked on it didn't really. You know, um, you know, the young writers who worked on it were very affectionate of it. They were the ones who sort of got it. David Chase, Bob Zemeckis, Michael Kozel. These are the guys who got it. <laughs> they understood the kind of antic, uh, subversive quality that was worked into the Night Stalker. Uh, so, you know, they, they kind of got it. Uh, but the guys who'd worked out, Darren, he, he would, was very, very proud of the original movie. And that was the thing that um, he was most enthusiastic and most eager to talk about. Do you think that we would still be talking about Night Stalker if it was just that TV movie, if there hadn't been the series and the Night Strangler as well? It's an interesting question. Um, the movie was big. The movie was just, I mean, again, I, you're talking about a movie which did a, uh, about a, a 34 rating and a, and, a, and, a, and a 54 share. You're talking, you know, huge, huge numbers. So um, from the standpoint of the impact that, that that movie had, and it was so darn fresh and so original, there was nothing like it. I mean, I just, the notion, you know, before when I was saying about how humor and horror are the two things you can't fake and that these are the two things which are, are primal. The interesting thing about Night Stalker is it's both. Night Stalker is three movies in one, which is why I think the original film had such a tremendous amount of appeal. It was a horror story. So obviously your traditional Dracula vampire story, a predator vampire moves to a major city to use it as a feeding ground. Well, that's Dracula. So you start with Bram Stoker and you start with Dracula and you start with horror and vampires and it works very well. You could watch the Night Stalker and just like it because it's that. <laughs> but then it's also kind of a throwback to an old fashioned newspaper comedy, something like out of the 1930s, something like the front page, uh, something that would have starred Clark Gable, you know, or Frederick March as a, you know, cut the gab, sweetheart, get me rewrite type of reporter. So it works as a comedy as well. There's a lot of humor in Night Stalker. So it works as horror, it works as humor. But it also works as sort of a detective mystery story. Kolshak operates as your traditional detective. He's trying to solve a mystery. The mystery happens to be a vampire. It happens to be supernatural. But, you know, when, when I finished Grave Secrets, my wife said, you know, this really reads like a mystery. And I said, yeah, it does, doesn't it? And that's because Kolchak operates as a mystery. It's no mistake that Darren, one of Darren McGavin's the roles he was known for before playing Carl Kolchak was Mike Hammer, one of the, the, the Mickey Spillane TV series. Is, you know, he was kind of known as that kind of uh, uh, you know, square-jawed, you know, hard-nosed gumshoe type, which is a quality he brought to Kolchak. So it works on all three levels. And I think that's one of the reasons it was – as the formula goes on, as the formula is repeated, you'll notice Night Strangler, the humor is a lot more pronounced in Night Strangler than it is in Night Stalker. And then it's really pronounced in the series. And, you know, David Chase has said in some ways they were writing, you know, a sitcom 
more than they were writing a horror show. They were very aware of writing the comedy aspects of Night Stalker as a series. So the humor gets more pronounced as you go along uh, when, when you're watching this. Um, so I think Night Stalker would have had a tremendous impact, uh, regardless of whether there had been a sequel or a series. But I think the sequel and the series just sort of reinforce and add to the myth and legend of the whole thing. So can I have some questions for you about, you know, working at Kent State? Um, how old were you when the Kent State shootings took place? Um, well, I was about uh, 13. I think I was 13 when the shootings took place. Um, yeah, I was. Um, so, you know, very aware of it, you know, but you were very aware of everything. You know, he's, I was also seven years old when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. So, you know, you go through that decade, um, you go through that era and, and that era really starts around 62, by the way, people always like, you know, the sixties and you know, you, you see decades aren't really so clean as to start with something with a zero and end with something with a nine. Right. Uh, you know, in the case of the 60s, the 60s are really defined mostly by about 62, 63, and they really kind of end around 72, 73. Um, that's really the 60s. That's the that's the era we talk about. And um, it's an era where almost every week seemed to bring some kind of earth-shattering news of some kind, whether it was a, a, a terrible kind, like, you know, the assassination of Martin Luther King or... Um, or the Kent State shootings, or something amazing like the uh, the Apollo 11 moon landing, uh, or the Mets winning the World Series, which, by the way, if you were in New York at the time, was on, on the equivalent of the moon landing. It's the same year, you know. Uh, it's as miraculous a thing as uh, as the moon landing. So, um, you know, it's an era where you felt like the world was being turned upside down, and it kind of was. Um, it really is an amazing decade, uh, not only because of what was happening. You know, there's there's a, a civil rights movement. There's a black power movement. There's a gay pride movement. There's a women's lib movement. There's a British invasion. Uh, there's a generation gap. There's an anti-war movement. There are riots. You know, you pick up the newspaper and the front page is about, you know, the Watts neighborhood burning. Um, it's a time of great developments. It's a time of great technological developments. It's a, it's just an amazing decade. <laughs> it really is. Um, you know, and we go into the 1960s a different people, and we come out of it a different people. Um, and one of the things we come out of that decade with is a distrust in our institutions that were, wasn't there when we went in. And that's reflected in the Night's Talk. That is very, very much reflected in the Night Stalkers. That in, you're going into the 60s, the average American believed and trusted in the institutions, government, church, law enforcement, all of these things. Um, this was part of the pattern of being a good American. Um, you know, coming out of the 60s, there is more of a sense of mistrust in some of these things, a questioning, let's say. And you see that reflected very much uh, in Night Stalker. That's why he that story is very much metaphorically perfect for its era. And that has increased. And I think this is why Night Stalker has never lost its appeal. You see it come back 
in a new iteration in the X-Files. You see, you know, that whole idea of mistrust, the paranoia is ratcheted up to an incredible degree in the X-Files. And, you know, Chris Carter will tell anybody who wants to listen that, you know, that the reason he created the X-Files was because the Night Stalker scared the hell out of him when he was a kid. Um, so, you know, you see this kind of continue to come back and continue to come back. You see this in, in a lot of the entertainment of today, uh, the kind of uh, wariness that something has gone wrong. Something has gone wrong. And it doesn't really matter where you are on the political spectrum or the social spectrum or the belief spectrum. Everybody kind of has this, this, this feeling that something's gone wrong and things are kind of off track. And that's kind of what Kolshak does. Kolshak is the guy who says, you know, if, if things aren't what they look like, things aren't what they seem. Look behind the glittering images of, um, of Las Vegas. Look behind all of those lights. Look behind all of the, the, the glamour and glitz that's there. And what are you going to find? You're going to find monsters. You're going to find a vampire. You're going to find bloodsuckers. Uh, behind there, so I mean, I think you know, Kolshak is is in some ways he's very much a creature of his time, but he's also eternal. He's also so, uh, so, so a character that just is always going to have a great deal of appeal. He's the maverick. He's the guy who goes into battle against overwhelming odds. Uh, he's the guy who gets his teeth kicked in for us and comes back for more. Um, that's an enormously appealing character. That's an enormously appealing uh, um, you know, vehicle for storytelling. And, um, you know, so it, it just, it, he just comes along at just the right time. And that's where timing is everything. That's where, you know, that's why it hit while it did, why it did. Kolchak was the perfect story for that moment, for that moment where we're poised, moving out of the, the 60s. After those assassinations, after Kent State, after Vietnam, or we're still in Vietnam, but all during this, this, this time, he comes along or poised between moving from one thing to another. And I think he's, he's just perfect for that. So speaking of timing, we've taken up a little bit over an hour of your time. So I just have one more question for you this evening. I know I sound like Columbo when I say that, but... You said that you almost wrote about the Twilight Zone all these years ago, but now you have turned around and written about the Twilight Zone. Can you tell us about your new book? It is called um, Everything I Need to Know I Learned on the Twilight Zone. Um, it is a tribute, in, in, in a way, a lighthearted tribute, uh, what Rod Serling and the writers on the, on, on the original show did. Um, it is basically 50 life lessons. You know, the question posed by the book is, you know, can you live your life? by the moral teachings of the Twilight Zone, and the answer is not only can you, but you probably should. And um, I solicited a lot of guest lessons for the book, uh, people who were involved with the, the show, like the late George Clayton Johnson and the late Jack Klugman, um, and uh, people who were fans of the show who I didn't know were fans of the show, but I found out people like Mel Brooks and Neil deGrasse Tyson and Dick Van Dyke, who are immense fans of the Twilight Zone. Uh, so they sent me guest lessons for this book and it, it all grew out of the, my love of the twilight zone and sharing my love with my daughter. Um, my, I actually showed her night gallery first. Uh, she watched night gallery, uh, when she was, uh, uh, probably about 13 and she liked it. She liked it a lot. She liked it a great deal. 
she was a little bit older. I said, well, okay, you know, now it's time for your postgraduate work. You know, you've, you've, you've got the night gallery. Now you're going to get the twilight zone. So we started a forced march through all five seasons. We started right at the beginning and we worked our way through. And we got to the episode with David Wayne, where he sells his soul to the devil for immortality. It's called Escape Clause. It's one of the early episodes. And uh, we got to the end of the episode. And of course, you know, everything goes wrong. He signs the contract and everything goes wrong. And I jokingly turned to my daughter and I said, let that be a lesson to you. you know, I wagged my finger at her and said, you, you let that let be a lesson to you. And I was kidding. And, you know, she chuckled and I chuckled. And then I thought, I said, no, really, <laughs> let that be a lesson to you. You know, read contracts, read everything, read, read every clause. I mean, we're in the middle of a housing crisis. Would we be in the middle of a housing crisis right now if people actually read the contracts that they signed? You know, this is serious, you know, and. Then this became a running joke. Every time we got to the end of an episode, I'd say, let that be a lesson to you. And then finally, the penny dropped. I had a book in this, you know, is that all you had to do was get, gather these lessons together and uh, talk about. It. So it's a tribute. It's, it's sort of a way of looking at the Twilight Zone that hasn't been done. It's not a history of the show. It's not some kind of scholarly uh, treatise on the show. There have been a lot of books done on the Twilight Zone and some very good ones. This was... Uh, an opportunity to do something which was a little different. And yes, it was an opportunity to go back and get the book that I thought foolishly, perhaps, but yet I felt it was owed me from the first early book I wanted to write. So, you know, uh, I finally get my Twilight Zone book, I guess is what this is all about. That's what I'm saying. And it has been a tremendously, like all of these books, it has been a tremendously rewarding experience. Uh, Rod's daughter, Anne, uh, wrote the foreword to the book. Um, and getting to know Anne has been one of the great joys of this. But uh, also going back and looking at these episodes in ways that um, perhaps I hadn't, you know, looked at. I mean, I always knew that The Twilight Zone was great metaphoric storytelling. Um, but this sort of gave me a chance to really dig in deep and look at this. And even with 50 life lessons, you're only scratching the surface of this show. This is that's all. I'm I'm hoping this book starts conversation. It's not going to end it. I'm I'm hoping it it starts a very lively conversation, and people will share the, their favorite lessons from the Twilight Zone. back thanks to mr dewitziak for taking the time to talk to us the uh, official name of his book by the way is night stalking the 25th anniversary tribute to kolchak so uh, great stuff i will definitely have links to that available over at our website kolchaktapes.com so be sure to check that out and plus like i said he's written a ton of other kolchak related things i mean he seems to have written more things about kolchak than jeff rice wrote about kolchak so he's uh, definitely got the chops a joke, but a sad one. Because since then, there have been comic books written about Kolchak. There have been short stories. I mean, case files. All these different things have happened. A horrifying TV show remake. He's been involved with so much of it. Even in the, the comic book adaptation of the Night Stalker book, there's you know big special thanks to Dewitziak inside of that. 
He's been very influential in keeping Kolchak like alive. One, the other thing that was great is the first time I ran across his work was actually with a Columbo book that he wrote as well. And, you know, I'm sure I'll bring up Columbo many times while we're recording this podcast, but Columbo is definitely a favorite of mine. So anybody who can write an appreciation of Columbo, and I think it's one of few appreciations out there of him other than, you know, websites that are dedicated to Columbo. I mean, he's already got high marks from me. And then the other thing is that I I wish that that were still in print. That's one that's really tough to find. And then even when it comes to this uh, night stalking, that's tough to find as well. That, that took me a while to get. And then you can buy it on Amazon, but it's generally pretty pricey. I mean, this was the 25th anniversary companion, and that was a few years ago. So maybe we'll get a, a 40th anniversary or 45 or maybe a 50th anniversary coming up here pretty soon where we can bring that book back out in print. With Columbo and Kolchak, there are so many, so many shows from the 60s and 70s that aren't Star Trek. Well, you know what I mean? Like, they don't have that following. They are like Kolchak, where you and I are talking about it. There are people in the industry who have very clearly been affected by it. Chris Carter, Frank Spotnitz, Zemeckis and Gale worked on the show. There have been people that have been affected by or have worked on the show that are big names now. But it's not... It's not spoken with the reverie that is Star Trek or even like Dallas or other I mean, other shows that just they get this sort of top tier reverence that they're lumped in with stuff like Star Trek and Star Wars and, you know, that they have these pop culture kind of fingerprint all over society. Well, hell, I mean, David Chase was the guy who ran the writer's room when it came to the Night Stalker TV series. And, you know, he ends up giving us the Sopranos. I mean, this guy definitely has, you know, he knows what he's doing as well. So, yeah. And to, we named off some shows on our, our previous episode, but obviously the X-Files doesn't exist without Kolchak. Things like the Chronicle, Special Unit 2. I mean, there's, uh, I would say even Supernatural doesn't exist without Kolchak. I mean, that's the thing. And we'll talk more about this as we get into the, the series and having Kolchak located in one location. Whereas things like the X-Files and Supernatural, they're allowed to move around a little bit. There's things built into the show that allow them to move. I guess Kolchak would be kind of similar to like a Buffy Summers where there's just that hell mouth there in, in Sunnydale as opposed to, you know, it, it kind of either he falls into these uh, things in Las Vegas and Seattle and Chicago. But once he gets to Chicago, there's a whole lot of weird shit happening in Chicago. So there's probably a hell mouth there. I mean, that's what I was saying. I didn't know. Like, it's like John McClane shit where it's like shit just keeps happening to me. Like, am I cursed? Like, I don't understand what's happening. Well, that's the thing, too, is that I always said about Die Hard is that the first two movies are set at Christmas. you got to keep the rest of the movie set at Christmas. Come on. just You can't just break with that. you got to give a bunch of hipsters a reason to be like, Die Hard is my favorite Christmas movie ever. Like, mm-hmm. That answer was funny 10 years ago. I think Supernatural would never have existed without the X-Files. X-Files would never have existed without Kolchak. And Kolchak, I don't think, would have ever existed without something like The Twilight Zone. 
I think you're right. I mean, especially having Matheson there helps. And yeah, I mentioned Dan Curtis and I don't think that Kolchak would have done what it did without like the dark shadow stuff to build on as well. I mean, that brought a supernatural soap opera into people's living room. When people think of dark shadows now, they probably think of that horrible, speaking of Johnny Depp, they probably think of that horrible Johnny Depp Tim Burton film, but there was a time when that was a really popular soap opera on television. And, you know, like I said, it brought a supernatural soap opera into the lives of so many people. I mean, my mom watched that as a soap opera when she was pregnant with me. So that tells you, you know, how far back this goes if, you know, and it goes back even farther than that. Well, and, you know, everyone always talks about the X-Files and the X-Files really is the show that Kolchak is the, the father of. Because, I mean, they even have Darren McGavin in the X-Files as Arthur Dales. And they say that he's the father of the X-Files. Wink, wink, wink. Nod, nod, nod. Because in the show, he's like, he was investigating the X-Files before Mulder was. I don't know if you ever watched the show, but I think McGavin even shows up in uh, Millennium. As uh, Lance Henriksen's dad. Again, father to the show. Yeah, wink, wink, wink. And then M. Emmett Walsh plays Darren McGavin's brother on the show when Darren McGavin was too sick to play Arthur Dales in the episode. M. Emmett Walsh still alive. Darren McGavin passed away. M. Emmett Walsh almost had an interview with him, but apparently he's not that interested. Next episode, we will be dealing with The Night Strangler, which was released almost exactly a year after The Night Stalker. The Night Stalker, by the way, was released, um, that that aired on January 11th, 1972. Night Strangler, the sequel, came out January 16th, 1973. We're not going to wait a year between episodes like they did with these movies. Uh, we'll, We'll be back a little bit before then. So... Come back next month with a look at the next reported Kolchak case, which has been dubbed the Night Strangler. Until then, learn more over at our website, www.kolchaktapes.com. I want to thank uh, John Walker for our theme song. All copyrights belong to him when it comes to that. And all copyrights for the other stuff belong to other people. Obviously, we're going to use clips and music from other things as well. So thank you very much for listening. And uh, Chris, where can people find you most days of the week? You can find me over at cultureshocked.com. That is the website that I'm editor-in-chief and, I don't know, head... Honcho. Uh, head, yeah, let's go with that. Head honcho of, uh, I do run my own podcast, The Culture Cast, where we talk about movies, and on Twitter, at Culture Stash, S-T-A-C-H. What about you, Mr. White? No E at the end of stash? No, come on. That's, okay. that's gilding the lily a little bit. All right, all right. You can find me over at projectionboothpodcast.com, where every week we're talking about a different movie. And now every month you'll be hearing about Kolchak. So I'm looking forward to uh, kicking out this whole venture with you, sir. I really am looking forward to this. If if these next four years worth of episodes are as <laughs> are as, as fun as this one has been then i'm in we're in for a good four years i think or three years i think is what this is yeah if that? we start talking comic books and books and all this kind of stuff we're, we're sticking around for the entire trump term and then we just some um, for some reason just start doing an x-files podcast not saying that that's going to happen but uh if people want to hear us talking about another TV show, we may have to come up with something at at the end of this. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that other X-Files podcast might have been done before. <laughs> I think that other X-Files podcast may be the reason that the show came back. <laughs> <laughs> because Kumail Nanjiani got a fucking spot on the show. So thanks, but <laughs> stop. 
Talking about another season, buddy. Yeah. Oh, God. More Kolchak, less X-Files. God, what has this world come to? All right. If folks want to support the show, go on over to iTunes where you can rate and review. Every rating and review definitely help the show get the word out about it because more people need to know about Kolchak. That's the simple truth. And more people would like Kolchak if they knew about it. People love the X-Files and Supernatural, so they would just love Kolchak. And they don't wear cool hats in those other shows. Or sweet-ass suits. So that's it. The book's finished. And now you'll have to judge for yourself. I must warn you, however, if you try to verify this account, you will find it quite impossible. Item, in Washington, D.C., there was no longer a file listing the suspect under his true name or any of his alleged aliases. Item, in Las Vegas, all of those who were involved have either left town aren't talking or are dead i haven't had a decent night's sleep since all this happened and now you might find it difficult too because there is still one fact that cannot be buried after the death of janos skorzeny he and all of his victims were immediately cremated why remember the legend all those who die from the bite of the vampire will return as a vampire, unless destroyed first. So think about it, and try to tell yourself, wherever you may be, in the quiet of your home, in the safety of your bed, try to tell yourself, it couldn't happen here.